Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 11. In today's news, Kenna Allen's pregnancy was already high risk. Then she got the coronavirus and gave birth on a ventilator. The Federal Reserve forecasts a slow recovery with worsening inequality. And the voting debacle in Georgia's primary on Tuesday does not bode well for November. But first, the big idea. Lafayette Square has reopened to the public this morning. The National Park Service says a portion of temporary fencing will remain in place around some damaged areas, but crews began removing much of the fencing yesterday, including around the ellipse. To be sure, there's still fallout from all the civil unrest of the last two weeks. More than 1,250 Justice Department alumni signed an open letter yesterday calling for an inspector general probe of Attorney General Bill Barr's role in clearing the largely peaceful protest in the square last Monday. Defense Secretary Mark Esper and General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said in a letter to Congress that active duty forces are no longer deployed in the district, but they added that President Trump still reserves the right to invoke the 1807 Insurrection Act to deploy military forces for law enforcement purposes anywhere he wants in the country. And Trump himself renewed his threat to take federal action against demonstrators in a tweet last night to Washington state officials demanding that they crack down on ongoing protests in Seattle. Trump tweeted at the mayor of Seattle and the governor to say, quote, take back your city now. If you don't do it, I will. The mayor, Jenny Durkin, replied, quote, go back to your bunker. But the conversation is shifting. Lawmakers at the Capitol held their first hearing yesterday on a Democratic policing reform proposal, and Republicans are promising to soon release draft legislation of their own. This is the first time in memory that leaders from both parties are expressing determination to offer legislative remedies for racial injustice in policing. But it's no sure thing that they'll be able to find common ground. Philanise Floyd testified the day after burying his brother before the House Judiciary Committee about the pain he felt when he watched that horrific video of his death as an officer's knee pinned his neck for nearly nine minutes. He pleaded with members of Congress to make far-reaching changes so that his brother did not die in vain. Between the occasional bouts of rancor, the two sides during the hearing voiced support for some of the same measures, including creating a national database to track police misconduct. The White House says Trump plans to unveil his own policing proposal soon, And the president met yesterday with black conservative leaders at the White House. Today, he will fly to Dallas to attend a roundtable on race relations and policing. One proposal with some bipartisan support up on the Hill would change qualified immunity. That's the legal doctrine that shields officers from lawsuits by lowering the bar for plaintiffs to sue police for alleged civil rights violations. But the White House says that's a non-starter and Trump would veto any bill that includes it police leaders from coast to coast say their rank and file are struggling to come to grips with the level of animus that they've encountered on the streets. They've faced epithets, bricks, and bottles. Police have been targets of protests many times before, of course, but they tell Griff Whitty and Nick Miroff that they've never experienced anything like this. Robert Harris, a Los Angeles police officer who runs that force's police union, said his members are telling him that they feel like the Vietnam veterans who returned home to a country that hated them. He said morale is low. Such sentiments elicit little sympathy from protesters. 
But the fact that police feel besieged and beleaguered potentially complicates efforts to transform Floyd's death into a catalyst for changing the system and preventing the sort of brutality that his death exemplified. Meanwhile, the cultural reckoning side of this story continues. NASCAR announced yesterday that it will ban displays of Confederate flags at all of its events and properties. Nancy Pelosi is pushing for the removal of all Confederate statues in Congress. But Trump rejected calls to rename military bases that honor Confederate generals. Trump said he would, quote, not even consider changing the names of army installations named for Confederate generals who betrayed the Union and fought to preserve slavery, a day after his own defense secretary, Mark Esper, said he would consider such proposals. Retired Army General David Petraeus notes that he spent a lot of his career assigned to Fort Bragg, which is named for Braxton Bragg, who commanded Tennessee forces for the Confederacy. Petraeus writes in The Atlantic that renaming the base is, quote, easy, obvious, and long overdue. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Thursday. Number one, Kenna Allen, a 34-year-old single mother navigating a high-risk pregnancy, took a selfie of her baby bump at about 18 weeks. Samantha Schmidt reports from Baton Rouge that this was one of the last days before Kenna started seeing stories on the news about people sickened at the same Mardi Gras parades that she had gone to in New Orleans. She drove herself to the emergency room on March 27th with a fever of 102.6. Her whole body ached as hospital staff in suits and face shields ushered her into an isolation unit, pumped fluids into her body through an IV, and after ruling out strep throat and then the flu, tested her for the coronavirus. Doctors assured her that going home was safe and advised her to go back to the hospital if her symptoms got any worse. She walked to her car, angry and scared, crying through the 15-minute drive back home, by the time the hospital called with her positive test results on March 29th, her chest felt like it was going to cave in. By April 1st, Kenna was unable to climb out of her mother's bathtub next to the second floor bedroom where she'd been isolated for nearly a week. She called her OBGYN's nurse, who'd been checking on her every day. As Donna was helping her daughter down the stairs, Kenna collapsed in her arms. Her mother called 911. 48 hours later, she was placed on a ventilator. At 21 weeks, time was what the baby needed most. On the morning of April 6th, Donna's phone rang, the mother. A few hours earlier, a nurse had entered her daughter's room to find Kenna's baby under the covers. Her womb had contracted, but the ventilator and medications had masked any signs of labor. Kenna had delivered her child without knowing it. The baby was born a day short of 22 weeks before most doctors consider a human life viable. Almost as quickly... As she had entered the world, she left it. Kenna's story is a reminder of the agonizing human cost of this contagion. As of this morning, more than 111,000 of our fellow Americans have died, and more than 2 million have been infected. More than a dozen states are showing new record highs in the number of positive coronavirus cases or hospitalizations weeks after they began lifting restrictions on most businesses and large gatherings. Number two, the Federal Reserve released a forecast yesterday predicting a slow recovery from this virus with unemployment at 9.3% by the end of this year. The Fed projects the rate will drop to 6.5% by the end of next year. Fed Chair Jerome Powell said during a news conference that Congress will probably need to appropriate more stimulus 
and he said that a substantial number of Americans may never get their jobs back. To revive the economy from the deepest recession since the Great Depression, the Fed has pledged to keep interest rates at zero, most likely through 2022, and to continue its extensive bond-buying programs at the current pace for the foreseeable future. But here's the rub. Many economists say that the Fed's efforts, which could swell its balance sheet to $10 trillion by the end of this year, are fueling deeper inequality. Low interest rates have helped drive stocks not just to where they were before the pandemic hit, but to all-time highs. You can get amazing loans right now for cars, mortgages, or starting a business. The problem is that you need savings and a stable job and good credit to get access to money or to invest in the market. So the rich get richer and the poor get left behind. Number three, there were warnings for months from local election officials voting rights advocates, and even the state's top election official, that the primaries in Georgia this week would be a mess. And yet somehow, no one managed to avert that from happening. The combination of limited training on new voting machines and reduced polling locations due to the coronavirus produced crushingly long lines and severely hampered access to the polls. Residents waited for hours to cast ballots. Some stood in line past midnight, Workers struggled to operate new touchscreen machines. Some polling places in suburban Atlanta literally opened with no equipment at all. As we reckoned with the possibility of a similar debacle on a national scale in November, state and local officials in Georgia blamed each other. Our folks on the ground say there was a combination of factors, including the collision of the new voting system with the pandemic, which also led to the cancellation of training sessions and diminished the core of people who were willing to work as poll workers. On top of that, overwhelmed county officials struggled to handle a crush of absentee ballot requests, leading to thousands of voters never receiving their absentee ballots in the mail. The widespread problems were quickly seized upon by both political parties. The Trump campaign said it showed the risks of mail voting, a practice the president has attacked without evidence as prone to fraud. Democrats and voting rights advocates seized on Georgia's chaotic primary day as an intentional act of voter suppression. Eric Holder, who served as Barack Obama's attorney general and now leads a political committee focused on ending partisan gerrymandering, said voters are starting to recognize the need for widespread electoral reform, much as they have awakened in recent weeks to the need for reforming police agencies. And that's The Daily 202 for Thursday, June 11th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 